We're continuing in Leviticus this morning, and then uh, we continue, we'll be doing some more of that in the evenings in March. All right, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. We'll be reading again verses 9 through 18. We've been here before, but we're focusing on particular commands, aspects of loving your neighbor, what that looks like. So please come and read God's word with me as we read Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyards. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your brother lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we come to your word in humility, needing to be instructed. We ask for clarity, for for wisdom, on a topic that is often very confusing and unclear today, that your commands that your desire, that your law, and especially your gospel shown in Jesus would shine clearly forth. And so we ask Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see the wonderful things in your law. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, that's not fair. Have you ever said that? Parents, have you ever heard that? It's not fair. I want to start today with a story. You've probably heard of him, a boxer named Joe Lewis, um, born, I believe, in the late 1910s, um, born in the Deep South, and his father moved to Detroit because Henry Ford paid the same wages to a black man as a white man. So the family moved from the Deep South looking for better opportunity, and Joe had a natural skill in boxing. And so he soon entered the ring in high school, and he made a name for himself quite quickly, winning championships, was known as the Brown Bomber, one of the most famous boxers, American boxers of all time. Probably his most famous uh, fights came against his opponent, Max Schnelling. Now, Schnelling, as you might be able to guess from the name, was German. Um, And he fought Joe Lewis earlier in the 1930s, and uh, Lewis was favored to win, but Snelling saw a weakness in one of Lewis's techniques, and Lewis didn't take him that seriously as a challenge, so Snelling trained hard. He was a little bit older, a little past his prime, but was able to beat Lewis because he exploited that weakness. Well, fast forward a couple years, and now Nazi Germany is on the rise. Now, Snelling was not a Nazi sympathizer, but there was a rematch in America 
And you know that this was a politically charged fight. Lewis was not only uh, wanting to revenge his loss, but he too was infuriated by the Nazi propaganda about the Aryan superiority, and he said, it might have been the first time in my life that I really wanted to hurt a man in the ring. This time he trained. Schnelling was even older. The fight was over in two minutes. It was probably the first time that many white Americans openly cheered for a black man who was representing them. When there was World War II, Joe Lewis decides to enlist in the army, but at that point, it's segregated, and so the black service was separate. And people asked him, Joe, why, why are you enlisting when you're set apart, when, when you're not treated as equal? And he said, lots of things wrong with America, but Hitler ain't going to fix them. The army recognized his value. Was, he was signed to the special service and did morale visits traveled thousands of miles around the world, uh, visiting uh, millions of soldiers. When he was discharged, he was given the Legion of Merit. It's, a, it's an award several pay grades higher than what I receive. But at that time, Joe Lewis had financial problems. He, he uh, owed a lot of money to his handlers, uh, taxes. He had back taxes. Um, he was getting older, and so he fought, but with uh, less, you know, less winnings. Um, at one point, he wanted to quit, but he had some businesses, but he failed. And there was one thing that Joe Lewis wanted to do. He wanted to sell Ford motor cars. After all, his dad worked there in Detroit. And so he asked Ford if they would allow him to have a franchise. And Ford did an internal poll with some of its more influential members. And you have to understand that Ford had most of its companies in the South, most of its dealerships in the South. And just recently on Earth in the archives are the responses, some in couched terms, some in no uncertain terms, that we will not have a black man selling cars for Ford Motor Company. So Joe Lewis was forced to fight again. He lost. He ended up turning to drugs. He lived a job in constant debt to the IRS. He ended up as a greeter in Caesar's Palace at a casino in Las Vegas. He died in 1981 at the age of 66. Max Schnelling, his former opponent, served as one of his pallbearers and had to help pay for his funeral. Now, ironically, Schnelling was given the license to distribute Coca-Cola products to northern Germany after World War II and became a wealthy man and died at 99. Now, I want you to think about that. Joe Lewis, American hero, athletic superstar, patriot, no franchise. Max Schnelling, uh, portrayed to the American public as representing Nazi Germany. Sell all the goods you want. Now, you can't help but see the injustice there. That's not fair. Now, we're told here to love your neighbor. It's a picture of, of what wholeness looks like when God's people live in his very presence. It's not just wholeness with him, but, but with the people around him. And last week we talked about how we build that trust of foundation But building on that, God also calls us to avoid and fight oppression. Now, originally I was going to talk about how to fight oppression and then to counter that with godly generosity. As I got into the passage, we will be talking about generosity as the second part next Sunday evening. Today we're going to talk about how do we fight oppression. 
Now, this is a charged topic, and for reasons we'll talk about later, Christians are sometimes wary of the word oppression. And a sermon is a short time. If I say something you don't understand or agree with, or why don't you come back to me later and say, hey, Pastor, can we talk about it? Where do you see that in God's word? It's what we're going to be going to. But they're so easy to be misunderstood and, and when, you, when you hear these words today. But oppression is a biblical word. And when God speaks, you need to take it seriously. And so I'd like us to begin by reading some more passages in the Old Testament where it talks about oppression. So the first one I want you to turn with me. You can turn to Exodus chapter 22. It's just one book before this. Exodus is right before Leviticus. And I want us to come to grips with these biblical categories for oppression. Often we miss them because they are in the Old Testament. We tend to concentrate on the New Testament. And even when we read them, we tend to skim over them. But as you heard in our New Testament readings today, they're the foundation for the teachings in the New Testament. So look at Exodus 22, verses 16, or rather we'll start at verses 21 through 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of the people, my people with you, who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You can turn back to Leviticus. I'm going to read a few other short chapter, uh, verses. You can just write them down if you want to. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. This is what the teacher says. And again, I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. You see how power is being misused to the pain of those who are oppressed. Listen to this in Amos chapter 8, as Amos calls wealthy Israelites to account. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying... When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. These are people who have wealth and means who are able to use that to take advantage of those who are poor and vulnerable. Isaiah chapter 1 calls God's people to repentance, verses 16 to 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Finally, Proverbs 14, 31 brings it together in one short verse. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. 
that is God. Now we could go on, we could go into the, the Psalms and the prophets, but here you see God's heart against oppression, his anger. What, how would you define oppression? Well, if you look at the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it would say unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. Maybe we'd want to even be a little more specific, an unjust or cruel exercise of God's authority or power, because all authority is delegated. And that's a good definition to fit the, the biblical examples we see here. Who are the people that are taken advantage of? The widow, the, the fatherless, the, the alien or, or, or the sojourner. These are vulnerable people who could, not, um, who could not fend off those who are in power. They were easily mistreated. Think about that. Why is that? They, they have no resources. They, they're living literally sometimes hand to mouth. And so that's why the Lord would say, do not withhold that man's wages, because if you don't pay him today, he and his children may not eat tonight. There was no safety net. And so he says to your fellow Israelite, if you were going to lend to him and take his cloak as collateral, and that's his only coat, you give it back to him. Because if it's cold tonight, he might shiver. They have no champion. If someone is to do wrong, then there's no, someone, there's no one to champion their rights or to advocate for them. And so the Lord says very clearly, you who are in power are not to take advantage of the poor. That is oppression. That is biblical oppression. Now, what does it look like today? It is, life is challenging today. And in some ways, it's more uh, complex. We will talk about fake oppression later on. But there are clear and obvious examples that we can talk about currently and, and from our past history. An obvious and tragic example is the American slave trade. And there were multiple actors in that, right? There were the tribal leaders in Africa who gladly sell, sold their, their fellow people into slavery. There was the slavers who brought them across the Atlantic to North and South America. And as it stayed especially long in the American slavery system, there was, there was the slavers, the whole society. This was clearly oppression. If you read the narrative of the life of a slave of Frederick Douglass, who, who escaped slavery, or, or Booker T. Washington's up from slavery, who was emancipated from this, it's, it's one of the most tragic blind spots of how professing Christians could read these passages that we just did and not think that in some way they applied to the people they owned as slaves. Well, we we've, can see um, racism, or perhaps better, sins, ethnic sins, um, where we favor people who are different from us. Yesterday and today, um, I had the privilege, and still do know, Mr. Pope, a friend of our, our, our dear brother Tom, who's now went with, gone to be at the Lord, but I, I got to talk with him uh, about what it was like growing up in the 40s and 50s. Um, he moved up to Woodstown, and, and he was one of the first classes. I can't remember if it was either integrated junior high or high school. But he was in a, in a segregated, um, would have said back then, a colored um, junior high. And he said it was better in some ways because the people cared. But it had to be changed. And so we had this integrated school. And my first day at school, it's either junior high or senior high, one of the kids came up to me and he punched me in the stomach and said, welcome to school. And he said, I knew, I knew, I just couldn't hit back because I would be the one who got in trouble, right? That's oppression. You can see how governments today oppress. They deny people religious freedoms or other freedoms. You see that around the world. You see that in some ways creeping into our own government and an authoritarian bent. But what about our own circles? How can authority be distorted? Well, 
pastors or elders can do to oppress congregations or individuals. Husbands can oppress wives. Parents can oppress children. Now, we need to be very careful here because sin works both ways. And in fact, we had a spirited discussion in Presbytery about this because it's not just people in authority that sin underneath to those underneath them. It can go the other way. And in fact, Leviticus, back in Leviticus 19.15, speaks to this very clearly. It says, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You don't show favoritism either way, but in righteousness... You shall judge your neighbor. So we need to understand. Sin goes both ways. But understand there is a unique danger. There is a, a special and, and, and a, a tragic damage when someone who is in leadership, someone in trusted authority, exerts their power to the advantage of the weaker one. So what is oppression? It's unjust or cruel and exercise of authority, godly authority of power. So why would we want to avoid this? Well, there's a pretty common sense answer you can give because I don't like it when it happens to me. Kids, right? what do you think when, when someone bigger or stronger than you picks on you and makes you do something you don't like? Probably don't like that. But especially today, we need a, we need a, 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 a more refined response. We need a deeper response. Why does God hate and condemn oppression as we've read in the Old Testament? Well, here's a few reasons. First of all, he's compassionate. We read this in Exodus. The Lord has a heart for the poor. He cares for them. If you read in the Psalms, it talks how he defends them. We sang about that, how God is the one who relieves the oppressed and feeds the hungry. This is, this is who, part of who God is. It's part of his character. You know, we often miss that little part in Galatians 2.10, where the Apostle Paul says, after talking about how, how they're, they're talking about keeping the gospel pure, and then he says, but I was encouraged to care for the poor. We, we talked about theology. We, we, we fought this, this, this creeping t- teaching which could, which could rob the gospel from us, but the elders asked me to care for the poor. The, that's because that's who God is. And in fact, oppression is fighting against the Lord's very desire to care for the poor. First reason we avoid oppression because God is compassionate. But second of all, God created authority and he gave it to you. And we know that God uses his power in an appropriate way. Each one of you has or, or will have or did have authority, power, influence. Right? It all comes from him. And he gives it to you and me to be stewards of his creation and to care for the people around you. And, and when you twist that authority and, and when you use it to hurt and, and push people down, you're, you're violating the very purpose of that authority. And that's why it's such a serious sin to oppress people. You know, when one of my children get angry and they, they smack each other, and yes, that, that does happen in the Barshinger household, um, that's not a good thing. And in fact, usually it's context-dependent, but usually, usually that child gets a spanking. And there's discipline. But what if I were to do that to my children? And in fact, there was a time where my little Rachel, we were talking about this, and they always debrief. We don't necessarily do this, but when there's discipline, they'll talk about it afterwards. And, and I, I said to Rachel, and, and it, uh, I said, you know, what well, would be wrong for one of you to smack another? But I said, what if I smacked you for no reason, not even as strong as I could? And she said, then you'd be a bad daddy. <laughs> right? And, and she knows that. 
Oh, by the way, interesting, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that even though we, we, we spank our children and we do it lovingly and, and we do it with this, this undertone of, of loving, consistent discipline, that she knows the difference between spanking and discipline and a father striking in an oppressive way, even though not a quite four-year-old. Isn't that interesting? You'd be a bad dad. You're twisting that authority. And when you take advantage of your fellow human and your neighbor, whatever power or authority you have, you're dishonoring God. Remember that, that pithy little statement from Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You could also look in the New Testament. We're not going to spend time, but mainly when oppression is used in the New Testament, it's talking about Satan oppressing and, and destroying the world. And once again, just like lying, Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the ultimate oppressor. When we join in oppression, you are joining Satan. The Lord takes this very seriously. And so we need to fight oppression in our own lives and advocate in the world around us. Now, 50 years ago, I, I would have continued the sermon this way and, and maybe defined oppression in ways that might have been culturally challenging and then gone on sharing the gospel into generosity. But that is not how I can preach today. Now, some of you may have questions right now. In fact, some of you may not like the word oppression. And you might say, Pastor, I, I get that slavery is wrong. It's terrible. But now I'm told that I'm an oppressor simply for the color of my skin. Or I understand there are times in the past where women weren't always treated fairly by society. But now because I'm a man who's married and I hold down a job and raise my kids, I'm part of the patriarchy. I'm an oppressor. Or kids, if you refuse to post the, the BLM fist or whatever is in vogue these days or fly the flag at school, you're an oppressor. Or perhaps even worse, if you meet a young woman who tells you, my pronouns are Zizer and Zem. And you say, not, not cruelly, but kindly, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you're clearly a she. You're an oppressor. You're a dead namer. Or you can even go further. If you drive, uh, it used to be an SUV, but now it's just a gas-powered vehicle. Or you take a flight to Hawaii or some other distant place in the jet. You are committing climate injustice. You, too, are an oppressor. Well, this puts you in a difficult situation, doesn't it? Because... Um, these people are using the biblical word oppression to describe things that aren't really oppression. In fact, sometimes they talk about good things like family and hard, honest work and even the gospel as part of a system of oppression. Well, what do you do? Because on the one hand, God calls you to avoid and fight true oppression as he defines it. And if we've been honest, there are times in the past when the American church has not done a good job of that. There's, there's some good instances, and there's some bad instances. There's been wonderful examples in church history, but we've had a mixed bag. And we should say, no, we don't want to be like that. We want to be a stellar example of avoiding oppression. But on the other hand, there are people and forces in society that call all kinds of things oppression. That range from the dubious at best to the very things that God calls you to do. It's a very confusing time, isn't it? So I'm going to call that fake oppression. When this oppression goes against what God calls you to do. Now it goes by 
many different names. It comes from a worldview, a way of thinking that traces its roots all the way back to Karl Marx. It, it, you probably hear different names, um, cultural Marxism, critical theory, sometimes social justice, woke ideology. It's, it's purposely vague. It, it came through academic circles really right around World War II when academics fled from the Frankfurt School, came to Germany, exploded in the postmodern era and the deconstructionist in the 1960s. Right? And you might say, Pastor, you can't talk about politics. It's starting to sound very political. But I would agree that we as, as Christians, especially ministers, we're, we're not going to preach about tax per bracket percentages. We're not going to preach about specific policies. But this is not a particular policy. This is a worldview. This is a philosophy. This is an anti-religion that is making religious claims. Now, there are other people that can define this much better than me. Um, you could look at the book by Vody Balcom, Fault Lines. There's a new book spoken well of by Neil Shimby and Pat Sawyer, Critical Dilemma, if you want to read more about this. Here's what I'm going to talk about, and you can just spot this fake oppression. When they talk about only oppressor and oppressed groups, right? That's, that's all that you have in the world. Always dividing. There's always oppressed and oppressor groups. And the oppressor groups are always trying to bend the oppressed groups to their will, even if they don't realize it. Now, do you understand? This view of oppression defines you not by what you do, but who you are. And this is coming with an ever-expanding categories of oppression. You, you're rich. It's by your gender. It's by your race. It's by your sexuality. It's by your religion. And unless you admit that you're an oppressor, you're exercising your power in an oppressive way. Now, I want you to see this and notice very significant, though sometimes subtle differences between true biblical oppression that God has clearly laid out and this fake oppression. Right? Biblical oppression says power and authority are not evil. It is misusing power and authority that is evil. Fake oppression says power is always evil in the hand of of the oppressor. I want you to see how biblical authority plays out in some of these categories that I mentioned. How does biblical authority work in the church? Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5 as he's encouraging the elders to take care of God's people. He says, as a fellow elder, I charge you, 1 Peter 5, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. That's, that's authority without oppression. In the marriage relationship, using the picture of Jesus, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yes, you are to lead your family, but you do it through sacrificial love. What about parents? Ephesians 6, 4, after the Apostle Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not be harsh with them. And yet I would submit to you that today, fake oppression would say almost all of those categories would be part of the patriarchy, would be part of the oppression, part of the problem. And so this is very dangerous. I want to talk about some dangers of this type of fake oppression. Well, first of all, it's a direct challenge to God's authority. Like the serpent, it says, has God really said? 
Black Lives Matter in their website used to have, before they removed it, this as one of their core values. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villagers. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family. That's, that's father, mother, children. Right? That's got to go. In fact, they would look at God's world and, and the structures he's made and his, his word, the government, church, marriage, parents. These are all oppressive. What they're ultimately doing is saying, God, you are the ultimate oppressor. We need to overturn these and be liberated. And this leads to very inconsistent and untethered applications of oppression. You know, one of the saddest things by, by people who are touting oppression all these days miss, in fact, celebrate one of the most obvious forms of oppression there is in our society today. That would be abortion. When, when a father and a mother decide to take the life of their child, if, if oppression is an unjust, cruel exercise of authority or power, if it's the strong preying on the weak, how is that not one of the most obvious forms of oppression today? But what makes this philosophy, this anti-religion dangerous, is that there is a grain of truth. And there's a clever bait and switch. Because isn't it true that there is real oppression? And all sinful being, human beings do misuse authority and power at some time. But, but the solution is not to get rid of the authority that God has put there, but to call sinners to repentance. And here I'll paraphrase from, from Frederick Douglass and his, his narrative of his life of a slave um, escaped and became a great emancipator, uh, writer, and speaker. And he was asked if he believed in the church after being a slave. And I'm paraphrasing here. But he said, I believe in the church of Christ, just not the church of the South. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying get rid of the church. But what he is saying, a church which celebrates slavery... Um, and is using God's word to oppress people like me, well, they don't have a right to be called a church. And, you, know, you, you can understand where he's coming from here. And I'm going to speak to the older Christians here. Here is a danger. Um, if, if, you're, if you're sitting on the sidelines and you're saying, oh, all this woke this and woke that, well, one of the reasons why young people might find it attractive is if the church is not speaking and acting according to what God commands. It can be a counterfeit, that young people might find attractive if we in the church are not doing what calls us to do. Well, another problem is that fake oppression does not solve legitimate oppression. It only reverses it. During the time right around George Floyd's death and those books that were being um, just coming to the surface, white fragility, someone, someone lent, me how, lent me How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And so I, I, I read it. I thought it would be useful for me to read someone who thinks very differently than I do. But I was very sad, both to see some of, the, some of the real challenges he had in his life, but that his solution, which he put unapologetically right up front, is that the solution to discrimination, whether it's real or not, is reverse discrimination. And it just broke my heart. I thought, oh, that, that is just going to make more bitterness. It's just going to perpetuate the cycle of anger and hate. It's, it's, just, going to, it's just going to cycle vengeance and anger and, and, and resentment. That's why fake oppression is dangerous. It doesn't have a solution. Someone said that critical theory is the doctrine of original sin without a doctrine of repentance or, or redemption. Right? You, you're a sinner, but there's no way to be saved. 
This is also dangerous because it gets mixed with Christian theology. It's basically the social gospel 2.0. You know, a hundred years ago, people said, Jesus didn't come to save us from a holy God and bring us to live in his presence, but to give us a better life now here on earth. Nothing more, nothing less. And coming with the liberation theologians, if I understand his work properly, people like, like James Cone would, would say, well, Jesus' substitutionary atonement, that, that is a white doctrine um, used to oppress black people. Because we'd say, well, Jesus suffered, so it's okay for you to suffer too. And while we say, well, that is an absolutely horrible twisting of scripture, whoever says that will answer to God. You can't cut off the fact that we all need a Savior. We need our Savior who's died for us. In fact, though, you will people see people critique um, penal substitutionary atonement, this idea that Jesus died in our place, the heartbeat of Leviticus, as white patriarchal colonialism. And they won't say, this isn't, you're not wrong, you didn't misinterpret it. No, you're making an argument from power. See how that undercuts the, the gospel? This kind of fake oppression also causes unnecessary divisions in the church. My sister-in-law and her husband uh, were going around the time of COVID and George Floyd to a uh, just a wonderful, uh, exploding, uh, healthy young church plant. Hundreds of people were coming. Young, a lot of young people. It was vibrant. It was full of life. And, and then their pastor started speaking, preaching in, in ways that started to include some of this thinking. And in fact, at one point. He said to the congregation, all of those of you who, who, who were saying, all, all of us who are white, we need to turn and repent to our brothers and sisters who are minorities. And on the way home, my sister-in-law turned to her husband, who was half Italian, half Jamaican, said, so, honey, do I have to repent to you? Do, do, my, do my daughters have to repent to you? It, it brings an unnecessary division. It brings people, uh, cuts people apart instead of uniting them in Christ. So how do we live? How do we live? Well, we saw a generous go- uh, gospel generosity. We'll talk about this next sermon. One of the ways by our lives, if we live a generous life, that's going to fight against oppression. But I will say, as, as, by God's grace, we need to live a life where you use your authority, your wealth, and your resources for the good of others. It starts there. And so, kids, I'm going to talk to you first. Kids, are you kind to those who are younger and smaller than you? Maybe they don't know as much of you yet because they're, they're little. You know, do, you, do you play fairly with them? Do you give them good deals when you trade? Try to broker that in our house. Older kids, do you use your social status in a way to care for others? You use your, if you're, if you're good with words or your popularity in a way to build people up instead of tear others down who are on the outside. Parents, do you humbly discipline your children in love, knowing that your father disciples you? Bosses, do you care for your employees, knowing that you too have a master in heaven? Here's a good question for you. Whenever you're in a position of of authority or influence, ask yourself, if the roles were reversed, would I choose me to be my leader? The way I'm acting right now. It's a good question for us to think about. As we say, we don't want a hint of, of this oppression in our own lives. But then how do you fight fake oppression? How do we do that? 
I'm going to mention a few ways. First of all, parents, be very careful who is discipling your children. Be very careful who is discipling your children, because your children, especially your young children, soak up everything. Last year, I hit Sammy with a a dad joke, and I said, Sammy, how do you catch a squirrel? And he said, well, Daddy, or, well, the answer is, um, I still have to work on my dad jokes, clearly. The answer is, you climb up a tree and act like a nut. That is the proper PA answer. To which Sammy replied, replied you shoot him with a gun. <laughs> which I, was kind of funny. And then I talked to my neighbor, Lucian. He said, oh, yeah, that's the correct answer. And it just struck me. Now, I, I didn't teach that to my son. Now, I have no problem with hunting animals if we're respectful to the animals. But the point was, I did not teach Sammy that answer. He absorbed it from South Jersey culture. Do you know there's a concerted effort to disciple your children away from Jesus? It's in the public schools. It's in big tech. It's in business. It's in Disney. It's in sports. And parents, you do not have to have a PhD in it, but you need to be versed in it. You need to read up on it. You need to listen to podcasts. You need to, you need to listen, read articles. And, and if you feel like that's over your head, come talk to the elders or pastors. We can help you disciple your kids. We can disciple you to disciple your kids. But you need to talk to children about these things. You don't hide it. You don't discuss it. At the dinner table today, you can say, so, so what is oppression? What does God say is oppression? Where have you seen real instances of oppression? And I will, I, will, I will challenge you to consider, where are you sending your kids? Are you sending them to public school? And if you are, are, are you fighting in prayer? Sometimes you don't have an, a choice. But are you realizing that although there are good school teachers, and there might even be good schools, that the entire system from the bottom, from the top up, is designed to disciple your children away from, from Christ? Are you aware of the impact that phones can have before your children are discerning? How quickly are you giving them to your children? Parents, be very careful who is discipling your children. Secondly, be, uncom- be uncompromising in the faith of God. And uncompromise, do not compromise with God's truth. You know, you cannot win some people. Sometimes with this, this fake oppression, uh, you're just going to be an oppressor in their minds. It's kind of that, like that question, when did you stop beating your wife? How do you answer that? Um, instead, you, you lovingly, firmly stand for the truth all you can do. But then for others, I want you to extend love and compassion toward those who are hurting. You know, I chose the story of Joe Lewis because at least it gripped me about the unfairness. Um, Praise God how fast in many ways our society has changed. But I want you to put yourself in the place of maybe Joe Lewis's child or, or, or grandchild. He's just a few years older than my grandfather. He could have a, a grandson or granddaughter my age. How might you feel if your grandfather was treated this way? And first of all, thinking, man, my grandfather turned out to be a Ford motor car tycoon. I'd be doing a lot better off. You might be a little bitter. You might sense the injustice a little bit more sharply. And, you know, if, if America has been good to you, before you just say, oh, that's fake oppression, that's, that's not really oppression. Maybe you can sit with that person. And you know, you can never repent of something you didn't commit. But you can condone the past and sin in the present. And you can sit and weep with those who hurt. 
and understand maybe even how they might see oppression where, biblically speaking, it isn't. You know, if there might be a young woman who has been repeatedly mistreated by men in her life growing up. You might understand why she's attracted to an unbiblical form of feminism. Now, it doesn't mean you stay there, but you start there. And then you can gently confront those using biblical verses to support fake oppression. If there's a well-meaning young Christian who's talking about white privilege and, and social justice and, and the patriarchy and then quoting biblical verses to support it, seek justice, correct oppression, well, you could just say, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't see those things there. Can you really fit all of that in, in those verses? Is that really what it's saying there? You can start that conversation. And then last of all, in, in, in all things, we ground your life and your actions and your conversation and your relationship with King Jesus. Because it, it, it's not knowing the philosophies of the day. It's not even going to be extremely generous in what we have and do in our lives, although those can be good things. It's the good news of Jesus that changes lives. And it's going to be the power of the gospel that binds up hurts and wounds and bitterness and breaks the cycle of retribution of an eye for an eye and getting worse and worse. It's, it's the beauty of his sacrifice as one who has put aside his power and experienced injustice for us that will move us to be radically generous. And it's his authority and truth and that foundation that will allow you to take that stand, even when other people say, you're an oppressor. And when you're misunderstood, and perhaps mistreated in turn, it is Jesus' suffering that causes you to join him by grace in his suffering. This is the Lord that you serve. This is the one that you love. And so what do you have to offer this world? Not, Not to deconstruct the deconstructionists, or even radical generosity, but a Savior who makes you right with your Father, and so allows you to love your neighbor. May that be us this week. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have a heart for those who are hungry, for those who are needy, for those who are hurting and oppressed. And I pray that if, if there are people who are hurting now, who have hurt or wounds or scars or bitterness, that Jesus would be the one who can calm and comfort them. Father, It's a difficult time. And so we ask your grace to live boldly and humbly before you that we would truly love you and so love our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.